this isn't all or nothing. It's not you have to do everything perfectly or don't bother. It's not that at all. It's every small change that you make for the better adds up. It's cumulative and you have made a benefit for your dog with every blueberry you feed. Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Hello, friend. I'm Molly Jacobson, and today on Dog Cancer Answers, we're talking about one of my all-time favorite topics, food. As a food writer, (laughs) this is a topic near and dear to my heart, and we have fellow foodie on with us, Dr. Susan Recker. Dr. Susan Recker is a veterinarian. She's an animal diet formulator and a member of our editorial team on dogcancer.com. We've asked her what her favorite foods are to help support dogs with cancer and also the top foods she recommends avoiding because almost everybody changes their dog's diet once they find out that their dog has cancer. It's a totally normal and reasonable thing to want to do when you're looking for something to control on a day-to-day basis in a situation that too often feels very out of control. So we're really looking forward to talking to Dr. Recker. Dr. Recker, thank you for joining us today. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I love talking about food. I love eating food. So this is this is going to be fun. I anticipate it well, and I'm sure it's, as you said before we started recording, it's an endless conversation about food. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. I mean, we have to eat every day, right? So we're, and we're constantly learning new things. So the conversation about food will just never end. It will never end. And we'll have you back, I'm certain, in the future. Today, we wanted to talk about sort of a high level picture of dogs with cancer and foods that people can feed them, that they should feed them and that they shouldn't feed them. Sort of like the top of the list and the bottom of the list. I don't know, the top offending foods and the top (laughs) go for it foods. Because there's so many people who, whether they can afford the time or money to do a a home-cooked diet, or whether they're sticking to a prescription diet from their doctor, or they don't do any dietary changes at all, they still want to give their dogs something special to eat to sort of say, I love you, and I want you to feel better, and hopefully to give them a nutrition boost. So I wanted to sort of attack this topic right from that perspective of like, what can diet do for dogs with cancer and what can't it do? Wow, that's such a good question. You know, over the course of my veterinary career, I came to understand that food can be medicine. You know, food can do a lot. Food can nourish the body. Food can give it all the building blocks it needs to run its processes properly. And so that's true in health. And it's certainly true if there's a disease state going on like cancer. And while I don't think that food is going to cure cancer, I think that it plays a really nice supporting role in how we can help our dogs manage that time of their life and manage treatment from cancer, help their bodies have a leg up just to let their bodies do what they naturally want to do to fight cancer and just to be healthy in general. So a lot of foods have medicinal properties. And I say that to mean that they contain all sorts of of course, vitamins and minerals, but also, you know, plants have a lot of phytonutrients that are bioactive that can play a role in being a catalyst or supporting, say, immune function or something like that. So some of the foods that you'll hear called superfoods are superfoods 
Because sure, their nutrient content is fantastic and their nutrient profile is great, but also they have some extra special little prizes tucked inside that really help our dog's bodies do what they need to do. And those are, you just said phytonutrients. Can you break that down a little bit in plain language? Yes. So plain language phytonutrients pretty much just means good stuff found in plants. Ah. So, you know, when doctors tell us to eat a, a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, it's because those plants have some compounds in them, these phytonutrients that we just can't get anywhere else because they are by definition in plants. And so we know that our dogs, you know, need protein. Their diet has to be rich in protein, which is coming primarily from animal sources, but there is protein in plant sources. But we do need to to make sure that we tuck in some of those add-ons to their diet that have those phytonutrients in them to provide them with those things that uh, meat's great and meat's important for our dogs, but it doesn't have everything in it that they need. Okay. And you also said another word, bioactive. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So bio, you know, the body biology and active. So that's just any compound that's in food that has an action in the body. Ah. So bioactives can be positive or bioactives can be negative. And of course, we want to harness those positive bioactives that are going to bring about some positive interaction or action within the body. Okay. So my guess is that when we ask you to name some foods that you should be feeding your dog with cancer, they're going to be packed with phytonutrients that are bioactive in a positive direction. <laughs> you are right. Not all of them on my list are plants, though. So some other foods have other bioactives that aren't necessarily phytonutrients because they're not coming from plants, uh-huh. but certainly contain other bioactives that are important. Okay, great. Well, let's get to the nitty gritty. I'd like to hear about the foods that you recommend. And then also a little bit about things like how much to feed and are these Mm. toppers on top of your regular food or how to give them to your dog? Okay. Well, if I'm pressed to pick my top choice, I think it's going to have to be sardines. (gasps) Yes. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I sent some enthusiasm. I'm speaking on behalf of dogs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and that's the other good thing. Most dogs really like them. So they're very palatable. They're yummy. They're delicious. So Molly's excited. Dogs are excited. I'm excited. We're all excited about sardines. <laughs> <laughs> so sardines and fish in general are excellent sources of omega-3 fatty acids, which are important. They play a lot of roles in the body. They're part of membrane health. So really every cell in our body needs omega-3 fatty acids to do what it needs to do. Ah. And they have been shown to have a beneficial effect in cancer. So omega-3 fatty acids are a good thing to load up in your dog's diet. Fish are a great source. There are omega-3 fatty acids in some plants also, but the omega-3s in marine sources, so fish and things that come from the water, are more bioavailable to dogs than are plant sources of omega-3s. So fish are a good source. Okay. And bioavailable means easy for the body to absorb. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And small fish are a good area to concentrate on because those small fish are at the bottom of the food chain as compared to a larger fish like, say, tuna or something like that, Mm -hmm. which has been eating 
more of those critters that are on the other end of the food chain. And so they tend to accumulate toxins like mercury and other things like that. Mm. So sardines are small fish. So we minimize their toxin load and maximize the omega-3 dose that we're giving our dogs through those sardines. The higher you go up the food chain on and off, on land and in the sea, the more likely those animals are to pack toxins. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So small fish, sardines. Mm -hmm. I know people are going to want to know. Packed in oil? Packed in water? Does it matter? Packed in water is preferable. Okay. But if you have access to sardines that are packed in olive oil, that is an option as well. Okay. You just need to be a little more careful if your dog has difficulty with fat. So if your dog's not used to a high fat meal and you give sardines packed in olive oil, that's quite a bit of fat right at once. And that could cause some GI upset, things like diarrhea or vomiting if your dog's not used to them. So if that's the case, start very small, just like a bite, and then work up from there. But if it's sardines packed in water, you can be a little bit more generous with your serving of sardines. And one typical sardine, which is, you know, I don't know, three to four inches in length in in a can, Mm -hmm. would be appropriate for, say, a 20-pound dog. Okay. And if you were to do that maybe three times a week, that would give a really nice omega-3 boost to your dog. Well, that's a very helpful guideline. Now, what about, I know another question, because people who don't eat sardines can be very intimidated. And in my opinion, it's something I've learned to love because my husband loves sardines and I had to learn to love them. (laughs) But I don't think I quite love them yet, but I do recognize their nutritional profile. (laughs) I should love them. So boneless, skinless, what's the best? What would you recommend for a dog? I think the most available in canned form is is whole sardines that still have bones and skin. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing is they're small little critters and they have really small bones that are pretty soft. So the bones that are in sardines are generally not any sort of a hazard for dogs. They're not sharp and pokey. They're not going to splinter and cause GI perforation. They're nice and soft. They're chewable. They're digestible. So dogs do just fine with that and with the skin as well. Okay. And I imagine that there's lots of minerals and yummy things for the body in those skin and bones. I mean, absolutely. Yes. We all should be eating nose to tail, really, I think. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yes. The sardines are a great source of omega-3s, but they're also a great source of vitamin D as well as vitamin B12. So they have a lot of good stuff going for them. The omega-3s are kind of our our target for this discussion today, but there's a a lot of other good stuff in there and they're a great source of protein as well. Okay, great. So this is something three times a week, one sardine for a 20 pound dog, and you can go up and down from there. Yep, exactly. That would be a really nice addition to whatever else you're giving your dog for food. Yes. Yeah. That would make a great topper. Great. Real treat for your dog. Your dog will look forward to those sardine days. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) My dog and my cats both love them. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What else should we be putting on that list of things to give our dogs with cancer? So my number two on the list is mushrooms. Mushrooms. Yes. Yes. And when I say mushrooms, I mean any culinary or medicinal mushrooms. So that means anything that's safe for you or me to eat. So if we go to the grocery store or the farmer's market and we buy mushrooms that we would cook and eat for ourselves, 
those are safe for our dogs too. Okay. It is not safe to let your dog go forage in the backyard and find wild mushrooms. Do not right. do that. Um, right. But but any culinary mushrooms that you would eat are safe for your dog. So button mushrooms, cremini mushrooms, oyster mushrooms, shiitake, maitake, but also some of the other lesser known varieties that are considered medicinal mushrooms. So you know, turkey tail is a, a good one. Chaga is another one. And many of those mushrooms have been demonstrated to have super great effects for the immune system. Turkey tail in particular, there's a study that showed that dogs with hemangiosarcoma lived more than a year past their prognostic date survival time with a turkey tail supplement. So there's supplement forms of mushrooms if your dog doesn't like mushrooms, but they can be a great addition to the bowl, again, as a topper. Mushrooms are super high in fiber as well. Mm -hmm. So if your dog's not used to that, that could cause some stomach upset if you give a large amount of mushrooms to begin with. So again, start small if it's not something that your dog's accustomed to. Maybe a teaspoon to start and just see how that goes. And if your dog tolerates that well, then you can work up from there to, you know, for a 50 pound dog, I would say you could even go as high as a quarter of a cup of mushrooms if your dog is used to that amount and their GI tract handles that just fine. Is that per meal or per day or? Per day, per day. Okay. Quarter cup per day. Yes. Yep. So if you're feeding two meals a day, then I would split that into two even servings. Or you could just choose to feed it just one meal per day and put the entire quarter cup in there. And and so that's a, for a 50-pound dog, with any of these dietary additions, one thing that's important to keep in mind is not to feed so much of a good thing that you throw the rest of the diet out of balance. Right. So there's a lot of great foods out there, but if we load them all in and our dog doesn't get to eat enough of all the other nutrients they need, then we can cause some some nutrient deficiencies, which is the last thing we want to do. Because everything works in tandem with each other. So if you give too much of one dietary nutrient and it's not in balance with the other dietary nutrients that need to be in the body in order for that thing to work, you're really not doing your dog much good, right? You're yes. overloading, possibly creating an imbalance that wasn't previously there in an attempt to do something good. Yes, absolutely. A great example of that is calcium and phosphorus. Both of those are super important for function in the body, but they have a very intimate relationship with one another. And we have to make sure that we have the calcium and phosphorus ratio in balance where we need it. So if we're overloading on calcium, we're going to disrupt phosphorus metabolism and the way that the body can use calcium and phosphorus. So we need to make sure we're giving them in the right balance with one another. So that's a great point. This may be why it's nice to get nutrition from food directly rather than relying on supplements, right? Absolutely. Yes. So a great example there is vitamin D. Many times you'll see that, well, not many times, there have been times in the news where you'll hear about dog foods being recalled because they have toxic levels of vitamin D. That's coming from vitamin D supplementation. Ah. So you can eat a lot of vitamin D in the form of sardines we were just talking about, and you can eat more than what's considered the maximum amount in a balanced diet. It's not going to be a problem from a natural food source, but in a supplement food source that can cause toxicity issues very quickly. So you're absolutely right. If you're, if you're eating food, real food, you are unlikely to cause a toxicity supplements can cause toxicities very quickly if they're not balanced properly. 
Yeah, this is sort of a like a mantra that I wish everybody could just get in their head is natural does not equal safe and the dose makes the poison, right? That Yes. Yes. It matters. More is not more. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. So sardines being good does not mean you give sardines every meal, every day. No. Every week, every month, every year, right? It's right. Right. Everything in moderation. Yeah. Sardines contain a lot of great nutrients, but they don't have all of them. So if we just feed sardines or if we feed so many sardines that our dog doesn't eat the rest of his food, then he's going to be deficient in other nutrients that are just as important. Right. Okay. So back to mushrooms. How do people prepare those for dogs? So the mushrooms are very high in fiber, which I mentioned. So to increase digestibility, chopping them finely or pureeing them is good, as is lightly cooking them. In mushrooms in particular, if we cook them, that makes some of those phytonutrients, those special nutrients that plants have, more available, more bioavailable, more easily absorbed and digested by dogs and by people. So lightly cooking, and by lightly cooking, I mean not high heat and not for a long period of time, will help to make those mushrooms more digestible. Okay. Like just in a stovetop in a saute pan with a little olive oil, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. A little yeah, olive just oil. Just for a couple yeah. minutes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And just until they get, you know, slightly softened and warmed. And that would be a good time to feed them. And it makes them extra delicious too. And they smell good. And that will usually bring all the uh, canines running in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. So are those mushrooms, can they be fed? You said up to a quarter cup a day mm -hmm. for a 50 pound dog. So that is something you could feed every day. You wouldn't worry too much about, it's not like a once a week kind of thing or three times a week. You could do that daily. Yes, you could. And we're talking about cooked mushrooms, not the mushroom yeah. supplements, which you would need to dose according to weight and all of the things. It's a little bit more concentrated. Okay. Exactly. And I want to mention with mushrooms too, um, sometimes people will throw the stems away. Uh -huh. Don't do that. Oh. Chop the stems and cook them. The stems are like the powerhouse of the mushroom. They contain even more fiber and beta-glucans which are super great for the immune system. So use the stems. Don't throw away the stems. That is really important. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got sardines and mushrooms. Yep. Yep. Is there anything else? Yes. I think my next choice on my list would be cruciferous vegetables. So things like Brussels sprouts and broccoli and cauliflower, because all of the vegetables in that family contain something called sulforaphane, which is one of those phytonutrients that has activity against cancer and does a lot of other great things in the body as well. So potent antioxidant and kind of helps to rev up the immune system. And those vegetables in their mature state are a great source of sulforaphane, but the richest source is sprouts. So broccoli sprouts have even more sulforaphane than the mature broccoli plant does. But broccoli in any form, it does contain sulforaphane, as does cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, anything else in that family. Cabbage? 
Yep, cabbage. Yes. Anything cruciferous. Yes, exactly. And those are all safe for dogs to eat. They are, yeah. And same caveat there, if your dog's not used to fibrous vegetables, if roughage is new to your dog, then go slowly with roughage or or you will see the same things happen that can happen in people who are not used to roughage and suddenly decide <laughs> to eat a lot of vegetables. So, you know, there could be some GI upset and possibly some really bad doggy gas. So go slowly with that to minimize that. Right. I've heard people in our Facebook group say, I started to feed my dog broccoli, but now they just have the worst gas. It's not good for my dog. (laughs) Maybe start low and go slow in general. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Get used to it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And another tip with the broccoli and the cruciferous vegetables to increase that sulforaphane content, if you chop the broccoli and then let it sit for 15 or 20 minutes before you feed it, you will actually increase the amount of sulforaphane in that vegetable. So that's even better way to serve it is chop it, let it sit. And then if you're chopping it really finely or pureeing it, that's helpful for your dog to be able to digest it, or you can cook it lightly again. After it sits. After it sits, yes. I had a friend who once told me that chopping Brussels sprouts or other cruciferous vegetables so that they would increase those sulforaphanes, but also, this was a food researcher I know, but also it mellows the flavor so that that people think they don't like the way these foods taste because they kind of have that sharp, kind of stinky, bitter taste to them. Yeah. But if you let them sit for a couple minutes, not only does it increase those good chemicals, but it also mellows their flavor. So it doesn't quote, taste like Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just taste sweet and delicious. Oh yeah. They're one of my favorites. Me too. And, and I think people don't like them because like you said, it's that bitter flavor, but also I didn't think I liked them when I was a child, but my mother boiled every vegetable to within a, an inch of its life. Right. And so, you know, no, I don't like mushy Brussels sprouts that have been boiled for 45 minutes, but properly prepared Brussels sprouts are delicious. Yes. I'm hearing my French Canadian grandmother say every food is delicious when prepared properly. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. I wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> yes. Um, you just I haven't had, had a good enough cook yet. <laughs> yes, exactly. I had a basset hound who loved all foods, but he, I tried to grow Brussels sprouts in my garden for many years. And the only year I was successful was the year that I put a fence around them to keep Barney out because Barney went into the garden and ate every single Brussels sprout off the plant. So he thought they were delicious with no preparation whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this is great. I endorse this. All of my dogs going back to the last 15 years, also endorse cruciferous vegetables. I've never had a dog turn down any of these foods. They love them in my experience. I think they crave what's good for them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They recognize it. They're like, oh, that's good. I'll eat it. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And I think what can happen is if they're used to eating one food for forever and you offer something that is new and foreign, sometimes they're like little kids and they're like, ooh, super weird, not going to touch it. I I don't know what that is. Stranger danger. But, you know, just keep offering and just keep trying. And maybe on the seventh or 11th or 21st time, they'll say, hmm, 
that smells kind of delicious. And then they'll give it a little nibble Mm -hmm. and then usually they're sold. So keep at it. And they trust you also, right? Like they they know that you love them and you're trying to take care of them. And so if you keep offering them something gently and without a lot of drama around it, kind of loosely, like, hey, try this. They can often just say, okay, well, I trust you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know you think this will taste good, so I'll try it. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and your point is a good one. We're offering this in a spirit of loving kindness, like, please try some. No, you don't want some. Okay, we'll try again another day. This isn't the, you know, when my mother made me sit at the dining room table for three hours because I didn't eat the liver and onions. We're not doing that. We're just saying, please try some. And then our dog will let us know if they want to. I'm going to recall my Grammy again, because <laughs> this is a very French way of handling food. Like, oh, you don't want to try this today? Well, You can try again tomorrow, but it's not in a bad way. And then she would say things like, you're going to love this when you do try it. And if you don't love it, it's because your taste buds haven't come in yet and you'll love it in a few years. And a hundred percent of the things I didn't like when I was a child, I now love. Yeah. And I think it's the attitude of like, don't worry. It's just food. Right. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's not an American mindset, though. No, it's not. You're absolutely right. Maybe we should be more French with our dogs. (laughs) Yes. What you just described is a very healthy mindset. Yeah. Okay. So cruciferous vegetables, mushrooms, sardines. And I've got one more. Okay. Yep. My final one on my list today is low sugar berries. So blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, strawberries. Those are all great for dogs. They're a great source of those phytonutrients we talked about. So those little chemicals that do good things that come in those plants. And specifically, they're a good source of resveratrol. And we hear that talked about a lot for humans, you know, in our in our red wine and our coffee, we get some resveratrol. We should not give our dogs red wine or coffee, Okay, but <laughs> Good caveat. we can give them berries. <laughs> berries. Berries are their wine. Yes, coffee. exactly. Exactly. And, and usually very enthusiastically accepted by most dogs. Most dogs like berries quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, and same caveat with amount to feed. If they're not used to it, start with just a small amount and gradually increase from there. Berries are really nice because they make good training treats too. You can tuck them in your pouch and take them out and give one blueberry or one small piece of strawberry each time that you need to reward your dog as you're doing some training. They travel fairly well in a pouch and they're portion control because they're small little bites and for the blueberries in particular. So I'm a big fan of blueberries or any red or black or blueberry for dogs. Okay, so use the color as a guide that those darker colors are going to have. So the dark color is associated with more phytonutrients in general, correct? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. That's great. And they don't need cooking? Nope, they don't need cooking. There's nothing to do to prepare? Just put them on the dog's food or give them as training treats? Absolutely. You can offer them as a topper. You can offer them as a training treat. They can be part of complete and balanced meals because they do offer many nutrients. So in meal recipes, you'll see them used also because of what they bring to the table nutritionally as well. Great. And do you have a guideline on how much to feed? Is this a daily thing? Is it less often? They definitely can be fed daily. And so my dog is about 50 pounds. And I would say when I have blueberries in the house, she gets probably 
10 to 20 blueberries a day. Okay. Little treats just sort of sprinkled on top of food, maybe. Yeah. Unless it's in an actual diet that someone like you have formulated, because you work with animaldietformulator.com, right? Yeah. So you can create a complete and balanced recipe there that incorporates those foods, or you can just use them as an add-on, a topper or a treat throughout the day as just kind of a bonus on top of their already complete and balanced meals. Right. Okay. So we've got sardines, mushrooms, cruciferous veggies, and darkly colored berries. Yes. I mean, that just sounds so delicious. Like what dog wouldn't like it? Okay. Let's take a quick break here. And then after the commercial break, when we get back, we'll dive into foods you should not give your dog with cancer. And now a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. (laughs) No matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life and the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damian Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects. You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet, as well as mind-body medicine. What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold, but if you get it direct from the publisher, 
you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com, and when you check out, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com, and use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. I want to let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Now, with a name like that, it is not for everyone. But if your dog has cancer, you will want to subscribe. That's because every issue features articles that will be helpful, such as low-carb dog cancer diet recipes, new clinical trials, financial resources to help pay for cancer care, information on supplements, and lots of other helpful info that your veterinarian may not know or have the time to share with you. Also, when you subscribe to Dog Cancer News, you will get a weekly update on the topics covered on this podcast, along with links and resources. So how much does Dog Cancer News cost? Well, today, you can subscribe for free. It's our gift. For a limited time, you can get a full year's subscription for free. No strings attached. Just go to this website to sign up for the newsletter now, dogcancernews.com. It takes less than 10 seconds to subscribe, and it is totally free. Do it now at dogcancernews.com. We're back with Dr. Susan Recker discussing the best and worst foods for dogs with cancer. So what are the foods that dogs shouldn't have? <laughs> so, so of course, you know, there are some outright no-nos for all dogs. So, you know, no onions, no chocolate, no grapes or raisins. But my list today is focused more on categories that contain some things that are not ideal for dogs or for people for that matter, but especially dogs whose bodies are already undergoing some sort of stress or challenge and we don't need to overload them with more. Right. So top on that list is foods that are cooked under high heat. And so that could be, you know, meats that are grilled or things that are baked at high heat or broiled. And the reason there is because that heat causes the Maillard reaction. So when carbohydrates and proteins meet under heat, they have this reaction and it forms things called advanced glycation end products. And that can include all sorts of different compounds. And on a related note, when fat and protein are heated together, they form advanced lipoxidation end products. So both of those compounds have detrimental effects inside the body. And it's more of a, a burden, a load for your dog's body to try to to deal with, to clean up after when their body's already really busy trying to deal with cancer or cancer treatment or any other illness. So things that are cooked under high heat create these, these different types of compounds that are detrimental. Heterocyclic amines, acrylamides are some other compounds that can be formed under high heat. And those have been linked with cancer formation in people and in dogs. So those are good to avoid. Right. And just to be clear, that reaction you're talking about is something you can see and something you can taste. Yes. It's the deliciousness that's on the outside <laughs> of, let's say, a seared piece of fish or yes. steak or, you know, like that browning that you can. Exactly. That's problematic. And it's a lot for the body to deal with. And it has to be processed out. So it just 
It's too much. And some of those compounds are known carcinogens, known cancer-causing compounds. Okay, so high heat. So what is high heat? Like if I'm sauteing something and on the stovetop in my pan, mm-hmm. am I only worried if the heat is literally turned up to high under my pan? Or do I need to like pay attention to what the food looks like? Or how do I know, mm-hmm. really? Yeah. Do I have to like aim my... I happen to have it because I'm a home cook. I have a thermometer that will I can aim at the pan and say, I know how hot that is. But do people need to get one of those in order to know they're cooking on high heat? Like, how do you know? So you nailed it with, you know, it's the it's the deliciousness you can see for those, those compounds that are formed <laughs> during high heat. We don't want to see those delicious compounds, even if you're cooking stovetop. So if you are... If you are browning some meat in a pan, you don't actually want it browned and crispy. You just want that meat to be cooked enough so that it's safe to eat, but you don't want to make it browned where it's a darker brown color and there's that kind of crust that forms on the outside of the meat. That is what you want to avoid. Okay. Yeah. So you might have your stove top. The temperature might be, quote, high, Mm-hmm. but you want to take it off before it gets brown. Yes, yes. Okay, all right. So it's because the meat is not necessarily reaching the temperature of the stovetop right away when it hits the pan. It takes a while to get there. Exactly. All right. And just as an aside, that the higher heat that we cook under and the longer period of time, the more we deplete nutrients as well. Right. So going with lower heat will help to retain some of those more sensitive vitamins in food. And we don't lose those as they just, you know, evaporate out of the pan. So poaching can be a cooking technique that is helpful to minimize the formation of those advanced glycation end products, as well as minimize the loss of nutrients in the food when we cook. I know a lot of people like to cook in a slow cooker, especially people who are working and do not have time to come home and cook for themselves, let alone their dog. So they put something in the slow cooker during the day. What do you think about that? I think that's a great option. So that's kind of the definition of what we consider gently cooked. It's low heat, So low and slow with a lid on. And that lid is Mm. crucial because that's what's keeping the moisture in the food. So when we keep that lid on, you know, and there's evaporation, it just drips back down onto the food. And so all that the vitamins that were in that moisture are just staying in the food there. So slow cooker is a great option. Okay, good. So slow cooker is good. Uh, Someone actually asked me about sous vide the other day. (laughs) I guess they have one of those like little sous vide wands. And I was like, yeah, be really smart because for those who don't know, it's kind of a fancy restaurant technique, but there are now pretty simple devices you can use in your own kitchen that if you're a cook, they could be really interesting. So you just take a pot, fill it with water, put your food in a bag, weight it down under the water, stick this sous vide wand in it. And it just heats the water to exactly the right temperature and then keeps it there for as long as you want it to. And it's a really interesting way to kind of keep food at a a certain temperature for ages. That's why they use it in restaurants, because they can cook the steaks all at once in sous vide baths and then just sear them when they're ready to serve. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> right? That's, that's so it's a, a very trick. fast, yeah, it is. It makes it fast <laughs> for them to serve the food. But we can use that at home too. So I yeah. thought that was kind of an interesting one. Yeah. Are there other techniques or ways of cooking that people, because so many people don't cook anymore. 
Right. We use convenience foods, which is, I can't fault anyone. We all do it. Yep. I'll mm-hmm. do it. Yep. Take out <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, prepared foods to go. And there's a lot of ways that we have a busy life. And so no judgment coming from me. I just happen to like to cook. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Same. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, anything that's low heat with no moisture loss is the ideal. Okay. So that idea of simmering rather than boiling. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And no crunchy brown food. Okay. Okay, good. So (laughs) crunchy brown food should be avoided. Yes. (laughs) Anything else that we should be taking off our list of things to give our dogs with cancer? Yes, a number of things. Artificial preservatives can be fraught with peril also. There's a number of things out there. Nitrates and nitrites are preservatives that you'll see oftentimes in like deli meats or hot dogs. So those are things to avoid with your dog. Those preservatives do interact inside the body and create other compounds that have been shown to be cancer-causing. So those are things we want to avoid. Ethoxyquin is another preservative that's used extensively with fish products. So if there is, uh, and you'll see this in dog foods that use fish as one of the ingredients, if it's fish meal, that almost always has ethoxyquin used as the preservative for fish meal. And so that that is another preservative that has been linked to some bad outcomes in terms of stuff it does in the body. So that's another one to avoid. BHA and BHT are other preservatives that have a number of unwanted effects. They've been shown to be endocrine disruptors, so they interfere with the way the body processes and uses hormones and all sorts of hormones. You know, there's hormones that govern thyroid function, there's hormones that govern pancreas function and insulin secretion, there's hormones that govern the reproductive system, and they all work together. So if we have something that's disrupting the endocrine system, it oftentimes doesn't pick on just one gland and one hormone. Once we throw off that axis, it kind of has global effects or effects all over the body. So BHA and BHT have been associated with that, but also as being potentially carcinogenic. So I would avoid any of those preservatives. And are these all showing up on labels? No, they're not. <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, the ethoxyquin is a is a prime contender there. You're not going to see on a label fish meal preserved with oxyquin, but if you see fish meal, you can pretty much assume it was preserved with ethoxyquin. Because that's how they preserve fish meal. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That fish meal as an ingredient is basically all the parts of the fish that we don't think of as food blend it up. Yes. And then there's no way to use that as an ingredient without making sure it doesn't degrade and break down. So they have to preserve it with something and that's what they use as a thoxiquin. Yes. Yeah. So you can't avoid it. Fish meal has it. Exactly. Much better to feed canned or fresh sardines instead. I think the dogs (laughs) would like the sardines better personally. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Because the other thing is, I didn't have this on my list, but now's a good time to, to mention it. Rancid fats are not a good thing nutritionally Mm. for anybody, but again, not for a dog whose body is busy doing other things, trying to fight cancer, trying to deal with treatments. Your dog's body is, is overloaded with stuff going on right now that it's trying to take care of. Rancid fats, so fats that have been oxidized, the oxygen is breaking down those double bonds in those fatty acids, and it's 
taking them from something that is crucial for life and critical for pretty much every process in your dog's body and making it a toxin that your dog's body has to somehow deal with and get rid of. So fats that are rancid, so that means essentially fats that have been heated and not preserved, fats that have undergone high heat processing, or just bags of food that have been open too long. The fats oxidize and they become rancid, and then they're no longer a benefit. Now they're a hindrance. Okay. So there's the preservatives that aren't going to show up on labels, and then there's the rancid fats, which might be in, say, bags of food that have sat around for too long. Uh, Most people listening probably don't reuse their cooking oil for so long that it turns rancid. But even your oil, if you buy a lot of oil and that's sitting in your cabinet for a year and you're not using it, then it might be rancid when you go in and sniff it. So it sounds to me like these are all things like we're not necessarily going to be able to check the label and say, is this in here? So how do we avoid these preservatives and rancid oils? Well, the best way to avoid them is to feed fresh food. Having said that, I'll say that in my opinion, the best diet is a properly balanced fresh food diet. Maybe one of the worst diets is an improperly balanced fresh food diet. Fresh food diet. Yes. So you have to check all the boxes to avoid all these things that are on our list of don't go there, but still make sure you're providing all the nutrients that your dog needs. Right. And so if you're not cooking a fresh food diet and you are using things that you're buying at the store, you want to buy something that's been made recently. You don't want to leave it sitting in your cabinet or your kitchen counter for too long so that it turns rancid. And you want to try to avoid things that have a lot of preservatives in them. So look for fish meal. Is there any other way to avoid those preservatives? or to to choose something that is less likely to have them. Like if a manufacturer says, don't use preservatives, is that something we know for sure is always true in all cases? Or like, is that a, you know, sometimes things are just marketing. You know? Right, <laughs> like, right. Right? Yes, like, what, yes. How do we know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> sometimes on a label, it's not apparent what's being used as a preservative. So vitamin E, which is a nutrient that we need in our bodies and our dog's bodies need it, It's added to food, not just to meet those nutrient needs, but it's added to protect those fats. So vitamin E is an antioxidant, and so it will help to provide some protection for those delicate fats against oxidation and becoming rancid. Uh So vitamin E is is an okay thing to see on a label because that's there to preserve those fats, and it's a preservative that is not linked to some of those... um, unwanted effects that we talked about with the nitrates and nitrites and ethoxyquin and BHA and BHT. All right. So look for those more natural preservatives. Yes. Great. What else should we not be doing with our dogs with cancer? Artificial colors. They don't need uh-huh. artificial colors. None of us need them, but you know, artificial colors are added to people food because we respond to that visual appearance of that color in that food. Our dogs don't care. Oh, that's true. They don't. They don't care they what color their see food is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I there never is about that. <laughs> no good reason to have artificial colors in anything your dog eats. It's not there for their benefit. And those artificial colors have definitely been linked to cancer and a whole host of other disease processes. So say no to artificial colors. 
Okay. What else? Genetically modified foods have some potential there to carry glyphosate residue. So glyphosate is Roundup, the herbicide that is used quite frequently. And Mm -hmm. uh, most foods are genetically modified to allow them to withstand Roundup usage. So, you know, those crops can be sprayed and the Roundup will kill the weeds, but it won't kill the crop. So that means that that crop is taking up all of that glyphosate, that chemical that's in Roundup. And then whoever or whatever eats that crop will be ingesting that glyphosate as well. So, you know, in in the not too distant past here, fairly recently, there was a major lawsuit where a person developed lymphoma from Mm -hmm. chronic exposure to glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And so the, the evidence for the link between cancer and glyphosate is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And if we have the option of avoiding glyphosate in our food, then then it seems pretty clear that it's better to do that as opposed to consuming it. Now, genetically modified foods are certainly linked to high glyphosate residues. So you can look for things that are non-GMO or look for things that are organic. That won't guarantee that there's no glyphosate in there, but that's the thing to look for to try and minimize the exposure to glyphosate in your food or your dog's food. That's a really interesting distinction because I certainly know a lot of people who are very worried about GMO, but they don't necessarily understand why. Yeah. It's not necessarily the genetic modification. It's that the genetic modification is there to accommodate more glyphosate use. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. It's Which not means that more we're glyphosate about. is being used. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's not yeah. like we're worried about, you know, zombie corn or something. It's not, you know, mutated into some alien thing, but it's corn that can be doused with glyphosate over and over and over again. All right. So minimizing or avoiding altogether, if you can, GMO foods, because obviously, you know, all of this can be hard for someone who, especially people who just found out their dogs have cancer, it can be really overwhelming. So do you have any thoughts about how to handle that overwhelm? Yeah, you know, do what you can. Doing something, picking one thing out of the list of of foods to give. And one thing out of the list of foods to avoid is a good start and, you know, start slow and build up from there with what you can do. Not everyone can financially afford to buy all organic food and all fresh food. Not everyone has the time to home prepare or do these other things. That's okay. Don't feel like it's all or nothing. Do the best you can. And any change you make in the right direction will have benefits for your dog. So this isn't all or nothing. It's not you have to do everything perfectly or don't bother. It's not that at all. It's every small change that you make for the better adds up. It's cumulative. And you have made a benefit for your dog with every blueberry you feed. There's some (laughs) bioactive polyphenols in your dog now that weren't there before you fed that blueberry. So small changes matter. Yeah, And they can add up to a lot. And it's not a requirement to do a full overhaul. You can implement small changes as you're able to. That's wonderful advice. Okay. So we've got GMO, we've got rancid oils, we've got (laughs) preservatives, hidden and otherwise. And we've got, what was the other one that you've already mentioned? Artificial colors and foods cooked under high heats. Yes. And so is there anything else that we should be avoiding? Yeah, there's one more category on my list today, and that is foods that contain excessive omega-6 fatty acids. Okay. So 
we talked about sardines being a great source of omega-3 fatty acids, and they are. Omega-6 fatty acids are related. They just have a different molecular structure than the omega-3 fatty acids, and they're necessary for body processes as well. But the problem comes in when that ratio, that relationship between the omega-6 and the omega-3 is skewed. When we have way more omega-6 fatty acids than we do omega-3 fatty acids, it is very pro-inflammatory. So it sets up kind of widespread inflammation in the body, which a dog with cancer certainly does not need any additional inflammation to deal with. So those omega-6 fatty acids are oftentimes found in plant sources. So, you know, I mentioned that there's a lot of great phytonutrients in plants. Yes, there are. Doesn't mean that all of one thing is a good thing. So things like corn and vegetable oils are big sources of omega-6 fatty acids. Mm. So those would be things to limit definitely or avoid altogether to try and keep that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in balance. That's very, very helpful. And and I hadn't thought about corn as a very common ingredient in in foods, right? Yes. So and corn oil also is a very common ingredient. So that's one of the reasons to I've often heard avoid starchy vegetables like corn, but it's not just the starch the omega-6 fatty acids that they're carrying. It is. Okay. And the glyphosate residue because corn is very often a GMO crop, especially in the U.S. Especially in the U.S. And even a friend of mine who's a, a farmer has pointed out to me that even when he is growing organic corn, it's still being pollinated along with GMO crops yes. down the road. Yes. And so that is very hard to not to not have that Plants live in the real world, not in a bubble. Exactly. <laughs> Just like all of us. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Yes. Everything's connected. Yeah. Well, that is a very, very useful list of things to avoid and things to give our dogs. My last question for you, Dr. Rucker, is if my dog has been eating all of these things or I haven't known about any of this beforehand, how bad should I feel? This is a loaded question. I'm going to lead you into the answer I want you to give. I hope you can pick up the, the cues I'm giving you. I got you. I got you. How, right? Because this is something that happens all the time. People, yeah. they didn't know that their dogs could get cancer. And then they find out that the food could have predisposed or could be linked to cancer in general. And then they think, oh, no. And if anybody's listening, like, if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I just didn't know any of this stuff. And now I've given my dog cancer. What do you say to that person? (laughs) You know, to our poor, our poor listeners, and certainly to me in the past, what do you say? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I say, sister, I've been there myself. You know, when I was a baby vet, I didn't know these things. Yeah. I think sometimes people come to their veterinarian looking for them to be an expert in nutrition. And I'm sorry to burst anyone's bubble, but we don't graduate from vet school as experts in nutrition. We actually don't get a whole lot of education on nutrition. And so it was as I was seeing my patients sick, eating foods I told them to eat. And then when I started to see the correlation between food as being able to cause disease or help keep the body healthy, that I shifted my focus on nutrition and started to educate myself more about these things that I became aware of them. So 
I am certainly not going to blame anyone or to say that you caused your dog's cancer by feeding these things when you didn't know that they were a problem. Of course you didn't. You know, when you know better, then you do better. And so you can always only start from today. And now if you learned something from today, you carry that forward into the future and you you use the things you learned and you're going to learn something new tomorrow that can help you as well. And you just continue that journey. And each day when you learn a new thing that can help you or your dog, you put it into play as you're able to. But we all do things that aren't ideal for any area of our lives, nutrition or otherwise. And we do the best we can. So you did the best you could. And when you decide or learn that there's maybe a better way to do something and you do it better from there on out, that's all you can do. And again, every change you make for the better is of benefit to your dog. So what's done in the past is done and we can't change it, but we can change what we have going forward. And that's what we'll do. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Recker. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listener. Dr. Recker gave us great tips to help choose healthy foods and snacks for our dogs with cancer. On the top foods list, we have sardines, mushrooms, cruciferous vegetables, and dark berries. And on the things to avoid list, we have foods cooked on high heat, artificial preservatives, rancid fats, artificial coloring, GMOs, and excess omega-6 fatty acids. Adding even one or two of the top foods to your dog's regular diet and removing one or two of the bad items can improve your dog's health for the better. As Dr. Recker said, this isn't all or nothing. We all have to do what we can in the moment and each day we strive to be better. And I can tell you from my experience being a dog lover, every dog that I take care of gets better care than the dog before them. Because as I know better, I do better. And that just has to be enough in this life, right? That's all we can ask. We have both of those lists written down for you in the show notes, and you can find them on dogcancer.com slash podcast. Also, be sure to check out the diet and lifestyle boost category on our website, dogcancer.com, where you'll find lots of great tips and tidbits to improve your dog's quality of life. I'm Molly Jacobson, and from all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Thank you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcancer.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. And here's a friendly reminder that you probably already know. This podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to take the place of the advice you receive from your dog's veterinarian. Only veterinarians who examine your dog can give you veterinary advice or diagnose your dog's medical condition. Your reliance on the information you hear on this podcast is solely at your own risk. If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network. 